0: 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and we will consider the first four verses together. Hear now God's holy inspired life-giving word to you, dear Christian. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Please be seated. Well, during the Enlightenment, the great poster child, if you will, philosopher, Immanuel Kant, Comes onto the scene and he gives the charge to humanity dare to use your own reason. And that charge was taken seriously by the world. In fact, they took that charge and they multiplied it and they built upon it. And so by the time you get to the end of the Enlightenment era, you really have the central truth of the human experience. And that is reason with a capital R. Human reason is the sole interpreter of all of life. And nothing is off limits in terms of what needs to be reinterpreted in light of this new foundation of reason. According to Kant, that was part of the experiment in the civil sphere. It was in the home And it was even in religious and academic institutions. The church was not off limits in that regard. And thus, neither was the interpretation of the Bible as a whole. And so after the Enlightenment, you really have human history entering a new phase. of What do we do with the Bible? What do we do with the way that we interpret it? And one of the endeavors that really arose in the aftermath of the Enlightenment, kind of riding the fumes of the Enlightenment, if you will, uh, was what was called the quest for the historical Jesus. And this was really a multi-century-long endeavor to try to make sense of the man and the message. Sure, there was probably a man named Jesus who lived at some point in human history, But that man, Jesus, in human history is certainly far removed from the message that we have in the Bible. Perhaps this Jesus was simply another drop in the bucket of human history, regardless of how big of a splash he made. Inevitably, he was just another person. And so you have these biblical writers who take this idea of this historical Jesus Uh, And they make a few tweaks. Uh, They make a few improvements on what might have been just an insignificant life. And they present it as the message. Uh, But the message needs to have a spokesperson. And so we just attach the historical Jesus. So there's this great uh, conflict between the man and the message. And that tendency really grew and grew until by the time we get to modernity, at the end of the 1800s turning into the early 1900s, we're beginning to ask questions that are far more significant of is there a disconnect between the man and the message to was there ever a man to begin with? Uh, J. Gressa Machen, who founded Westminster Theological Seminary as well as the Orthodox Presbyterian Church denomination, the OPC, uh, this year is actually the 100th anniversary of his monumental book entitled Christianity and Liberalism. And one of the things that Machen notes in that book is the way in which we have really gone from a historical person and a historical message to now missionaries in his prior denomination saying things like, we can evangelize the world and it doesn't really matter if a person named Jesus ever existed or not. It makes no difference to our message. And of course, hopefully you hear that and your ears are not tickled, but they sting. They're on fire when you hear such a thing as that. There could be this idea that the man named Jesus never lived, and we can go on about our day with our message regardless, because our message is simply in light of what the culture has to say, and we modify it as needed because reason is what rules but that flies in the face of what we have here and very much presents to us the man and the message in perfect continuity, and it's a book that I think is very prevalent for our own day, for us to consider together. We're going to make our way through these first four verses, uh, but because this is the first time we're entering into First John, I'm going to give just a very brief kind of introduction to the book, a lay of the land, if you will. And so we'll start by just asking the three simple questions that you want to know when you come to a book in the Bible, who wrote it, who received it, who was the original audience, and what's it all about? And unfortunately, none of those three questions are answered objectively in terms of the content of the book itself. And of course, you can see by the fact that your Bible entitles this book of the Bible, 1 John that that is the tradition, that's the historical tradition of the church, that it was none other than the Apostle John who wrote this. Well, who did he write it to? Well, again, we don't know that entirely because if you compare this to a book such as 2 John, which is very clearly written to a particular congregation, or 3 John, which is written to a particular person, 1 John doesn't have either of those features. It seems to be very general. It seems to be a letter that was intended to be circulated among more than just one church. And so there's a lot of uh, theories out there as to who this original audience was. Well, we know that uh, by church history and the early church fathers such as uh, Ignatius, Irenaeus, Polycarp, those uh, direct descendants and contemporaries of the Apostle John, uh, were, uh, give us clues that John was ministering towards the end of his life in the Ephesus region. So maybe this was given to a church in Ephesus. Maybe it was given to a collection of house churches throughout Ephesus. Maybe it was supposed to be floated around uh, the town itself to different house churches. There's also the theory out there that if you take that John wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, as well as the book of Revelation... When you come to the beginning of the book of Revelation and you have those seven churches in Asia Minor in the Ephesus region, of course, Ephesus is included among those seven churches. Uh, one of the theories out there is that this letter was meant to circulate to those historical seven churches. And of course, that all depends on how you interpret the book of Revelation, but it's a fascinating theory uh, nonetheless. Most likely, it is churches in that region of Ephesus that John was laboring to care for during the latter years of his life. But then you ask the question, well, if the Apostle John wrote it, and we'll say a little bit more about that later, and this uh, region of churches received this letter, what is it all about? And again, you might be disappointed to know that John doesn't spell that out explicitly. And the reason for that is not because he actually doesn't spell it out explicitly, but rather because he spells it out explicitly explicitly, a whole lot of different places in the letter with a whole lot of different answers. Uh, You'll see this recurring theme throughout this letter that he says, I'm writing to you so that this, or so that this. So there's not this kind of ultimate uh, endeavor to understand this book by cracking the code, such as going to a book like Romans or a book like 1 Corinthians, and trying to nail that down. Here's a letter. Here's Paul writing to this church. Here's what it's about. Instead, you have here in 1 John, he wants to talk to us about a lot of different things. And so he's going to write about a lot of different things, and he wants us to take all of those together uh, with a matter of importance. But one of the reasons that we can take this book to be written by the Apostle John is because of the unmistakable connection that you find in this book with the Gospel of John. You could find in every single verse of 1 John some kind of reference or direct quotation from the Gospel of John. We could say that 1 John is, if you will, an inspired commentary on the Gospel of John, And we could even say that even more than John in general, we could say that 1 John seems to be somewhat of a commentary on the Upper Room Discourse, uh, where Jesus met with his disciples just before his betrayal and crucifixion. Uh, Those final chapters during that time in Jesus' earthly ministry before the cross, uh, chapters 13 up until his high priestly prayer in chapter 17, he's unpacking to his apostles these grand truths of the Christian life, what his mission is, what it will mean for them, what the world will think of them after Jesus has died and risen and ascended. And it seems like John, here in 1 John, is pulling from all of those final teachings in that upper room and he's reappropriating them for the church at large. So you could say that 1 John is really your inspired firsthand commentary on that upper room discourse. And so it's very. Uh, Important and, I think, helpful to read them alongside one another. I would encourage you to do that. But even though we don't have a a general theme here in this book, you can't really boil it down to one particular purpose of why John is writing. We could still say that this passage before us has one great truth that he wants to communicate, and that is this, that Christianity is no less than a direct encounter with the man and the message. That's what I want you to see. The Christianity is no less than a direct encounter with the man and the message. And so if you want to think about the way that we'll split this up, uh, you could really consider verses 1 and 2 as the man, if you're taking notes, verses 3 and 4 as the message. But we'll work through these uh, one at a time and just consider uh, some things that we can take away as a way to kind of prime us uh, toward appreciating this letter as a whole in the coming Months. So let's look at verse 1 now. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. If you look to this language here in the opening verse of 1 John, you can immediately see that there's a relation here uh, between what is said in verse 1 and the way that the gospel of John begins. In the beginning was the word. Right? And you can see uh, the same way that John introduces that in the Gospel of John, that that itself is a callback to Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. Genesis 1, 1. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. And so in both of those cases, in Genesis and in the Gospel of John, you have in Genesis the creation account, kind of an aerial shot. Uh, The narrator is presenting us with the reality of creation. God created all things. In the Gospel of John, we're told that the Word who became flesh is, in fact, God himself, Jesus Christ. In both cases, it's kind of an aerial shot, if you will. It's kind of a flyover of the events. It's presented by a narrator who is, at least in terms of what he's writing, kind of We're, We're viewing history unfolding. But here in 1 John, the vantage point is different. It's not an aerial shot. It's not a lay of the land. It's the ground zero experience. It's the raw reaction to the events as they unfolded in real time. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. It's fascinating the way that John presents the beginning of his letter here as sort of a sensory experience. Uh, You can see that. You can see it in the hearing, in the seeing, in the touching. Uh, This is a raw, tangible, if you will, uh, experience that John is wanting to communicate We might even say that at the very beginning here in in verse 1, you have uh, John presenting to us somewhat of empirical evidence of the Christian testimony. Empirical evidence of a historical event that actually happened and that he was actually there to witness and experience firsthand. But it is, at least in English, kind of a strange phraseology. You have the glory of of Genesis in the beginning, you have the glory of the Gospel of John in the beginning, and then you get to 1 John, and it's a very awkward introductory phrase, that which. I don't know how many of you begin your sentences with that which, probably none of you, and so you have to kind of think, what is being communicated here? Well, if you take the whole verse together, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. That which is really just a a literary device to say, that is this. That is this. That which is this. And the this that it is, is the word of life. Many of your Bibles rightly have uh, the word of life as, as a capitalized phrase because it's an identity that John is wanting to present. That, not abstract concepts, but that is a person, the word of life himself. Think about the way that we talked about this briefly in, in our Sunday school class this morning. When you think about that empirical evidence, uh, the sensory experience, if you will, think about Jesus after he is raised from the dead. He appears to the disciples and Thomas. Thomas has got to touch him. He doesn't just want to hear about the fact that he's he's raised from the dead. He wants to know that this is Jesus. And he wants to know that this Jesus is not a hologram, that this Jesus is not just a ghost that you could put your hand through, but this Jesus is the same Jesus that the Apostle John laid at his bosom, the same Jesus that touched their feet as he watched them. He's got to know that's the same person. That is this. And remember what Thomas's response is after he touches Jesus. What's his response? My Lord and my God, that is this. And here we have that same testimony by the Apostle John. That is this, the word of life. The life, verse 2, was made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. You know, it's very silly when I think about uh, how people react to meeting celebrities. It's a fascinating thing when you think about meeting the person who wrote your favorite song or the person that led your team to the championship. Or maybe the person that blew it at the championship, and so you really wanted to say a few words to them if you ever came across them in real life. Uh, But regardless, I guarantee that whatever your take on Tim Tebow is, being a Jacksonville native, I guarantee you if you ran into him and talked to him for a few moments, you would tell somebody. You'd pick up the phone, you'd call somebody, you'd text them, you'd take a picture Something, uh, because we have this kind of giddy response to meeting celebrities, to being before those who seem to be larger than life. And it's silly because we act that way with those who are as dependent on their next breath as we are. Those who will breathe their last breath as we will. Those who seem to be larger than life, but at the end of the day are a human just like you are might make more money they might be known by more people they might have uh, particularly popular personality traits but these are still people and that is all they are and so when you consider that to what john is saying john's not talking about meeting a celebrity John's not talking about meeting somebody that seemed to be larger than life, somebody that made a bigger splash in the bucket as they dropped in, but in fact, God himself. Now, I don't know what your response would be if your favorite celebrity showed up to your house and knocked on the door, and you opened the door, not expecting them to be there, And you opened the door and you saw them and your demeanor probably would immediately change. You would be acting out of the norm. You would not be yourself because you would be faced with this larger-than-life figure. But imagine how you would act, if you'll just humor me for a moment, how would you act if the Lord Jesus Christ himself came and knocked on your door and you opened the door to find him there? what would your response be? Would you hit the deck? Would you welcome a dear friend? Or would you recognize him at all? These are interesting questions that we should ask ourselves, and we can't help but think about what John is saying here is that this experience, the that which is this experience that he had was with God himself. The life, the word of life, was made manifest. We have seen it and testify to it. We don't know what to do with this. We we can't relate. If you try to think of how people have historically reacted to seeing Christ himself, we can't help but think about Isaiah 6. Isaiah hits the deck, if you will. Because he doesn't know what to do with the fact that he is in the presence of the holy and true God. We think about John here. Yes, he interacted with Jesus in his earthly ministry, but the very second that his glory was no longer veiled up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John hit the deck at the very presence of Christ. The opening of the book of Revelation, John again sees Jesus in his glory. He hits the deck as though he were dead. John had come into the very presence of the one who, if he had not veiled his glory, he wouldn't have been able to survive the encounter. And yet this God, this Lord Jesus Christ, not only manifested himself in a way that John saw and testified to at a safe distance, But this Lord Jesus Christ is the one that John saw and heard and looked upon and touched. Martin Luther, in his moment of crisis, when he was still in the monastery, he was getting ready uh, to present and oversee the Lord's Supper. And his dad was invited, along with his mom, to the occasion. And Martin Luther is getting ready to make... The prayer of consecration, and in that Roman Catholic belief, when that prayer is uttered, the bread and the wine turn into the body and blood of Christ, transubstantiation. And Luther, because he still believed that doctrine, the longer he thought about it, the more he couldn't handle it. To the point that he couldn't even do the Lord's Supper and oversee it at that moment. He, he chickened out because he thought, who am I to touch the Lord of glory himself? I can't do that. I'm a miserable sinner. Who am I to stand in the presence of a holy God? And yet here, where Christ truly did enter into human history and manifested himself, John was at more than a safe distance And he's testifying to that very fact. Another way that we could consider uh, the title given to Jesus here is uh, the way that John strings together a few different phrases. First, Jesus is introduced as the word of life at the beginning of verse 1. Then at the end of verse 1, then at the beginning of verse 2, the life. And then at the end of verse 2 or midway through verse 2, he is the eternal life. Eternal life is something that we don't generally think of as a person. We think of as a concept, as an abstract principle. John 3.16, eternal life is, is a thing that you get. It's an experience that you have, but it's this abstract idea. And here, John introduces the eternal life not as an abstract idea, not as a thing merely that you get, but as a person, as a man. The word of life is the eternal life. So here's our first clue, the fact that you cannot separate the man from the message. You can't separate the message of eternal life from the man, the eternal life. And that eternal life was with the Father and made manifest to us. Verse 3. Here we have another instance of the that is this. You can see it in the way that he writes, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. That man, that experience, that living in close encounter with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that historical event is this, the message that we proclaim to you. We're proclaiming to you a historical Jesus that actually lived, and the message that we proclaim is the testimony about the real man. There's no separation, there's no distance, there's no modification from the man to the message. The man is the message, we might say it that way. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. And then his reasoning is fascinating. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to, also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Now, you might not have expected, if you're, if you're following his, his line of thought here, you might not have expected that he was going to say that you might have fellowship with us. You might have expected him to say that you might have fellowship with him. That would make more sense. But at the very front end of this letter, John wants to communicate a crucial understanding for us. And that is this. We, we might call it the horizontal element of Christianity. We, we might call it the outward experience of Christianity. Christianity, to be sure, is personal, but it's not individualistic. There's a huge difference. I hope you understand the, the difference there. Eternal life is given to persons but eternal life is giving to persons that they might be made a people. Look around. We call this the church. Personal, but not individualistic. Eternal life, but given eternal life that we might be one body. There's that analogy, the body of Christ. We can talk a lot about being tied to the head, who is Christ himself. But if you're tied to the head, you're necessarily tied to the rest of the body. And John throws that reality at the very front end when he says, this we proclaim to you that you might have fellowship with us, to remind us of that horizontal experience of, of Christianity. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about the vertical Reality of Christianity, but at the very beginning he wants us to understand that there's a horizontal foundation for vertical fellowship with God. If we say we have vertical fellowship with God, John would go on to say, and yet do not love our brothers, and there's about 20 more examples of that I could give you from this letter later on, but it's a preview here. It's a preview of this foundation that John wants us To understand, but yet at the same time, he throws that on the front end in a way of of speaking. We might say that this fellowship that we're talking about is a guilty by association thing. We want you to have fellowship with us because our fellowship is with the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You have fellowship with us, true fellowship, the kind of fellowship that we're going to qualify, the kind of fellowship that we're talking about here, a real fellowship then you necessarily, by consequence, are going to have fellowship with the one that we have fellowship with as well. So it's a both and. It's a packaged deal. And John wants to introduce that at the very front end of this letter to remind us of things that he's going to tease out much more later on. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father And with his son, Jesus Christ. And now verse 4. Here we're given the first of many reasons of why he's writing this letter. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I mentioned that there's a lot of other reasons that John writes the letter. You could just skip ahead and look at chapter 2, verse 1. I'm writing these things so that. Or verse 7, I'm writing you, no new commandment. Or move on to verse 12, I'm writing to you. There's Again and again, John is giving these reasons of why he's writing. There's a whole lot of things that he's trying to encapsulate in this letter, which is one of the other evidences that this was written to churches, a a multitude of churches to be circulated because presumably all of these churches had different issues. And John just writes this colossal letter to just cover the whole scope. But in verse 4, the first and primary reason that he gives is the reason of joy. Now, we have to ask a couple questions uh, at the very beginning here. And that is uh, one of the things that you may have picked up on, maybe something that you didn't pick up on, but now you will inevitably see it, and that is why John writes in this way here, the beginning as as we, that which was from the beginning we have heard, we have seen, we have looked upon, have touched, our fellowship, we are writing these things. And that's certainly not to uh, suggest that there's just a collection of people kind of tag-teaming this letter, because if you skip on ahead uh, to the beginning of chapter 2, it shifts to I am writing. And So this is written by a singular person. This is written by the Apostle John. But one of the reasons that we see this corporate language is because he's reminding us of a historical testimony of which John is not a lone ranger. One of the ideas in the Gospel of John, as well as John's letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, one of the ideas is that he's writing this in the latter years of his life, after the first three Gospels had been written, and John seeing the trends of error that are creeping into the church, all varieties of Gnosticism, which we've been talking about in our adult Sunday school class, and all the rest, that it seems that John is, is seeing the trajectory of the early church, And at the end of his life, he gives his gospel as well as these letters to course correct and to warn these new motivations for new ideas and taking the the early message of Christianity and and modifying it. it, put a little bit of philosophical flavor on top of it from all the competing Greek systems and all the rest. And it seems that what John is doing is reeling things in and bringing it back to the foundational historical event. And he's saying, we, we might say that is the apostles, we have seen all of these things. What I am writing to you is the historic position of the other apostles. What I am writing to you is the foundational testimony from the beginning. This is the OG message for you to receive. Do not be... Swept away from all of these competing flavors in the name of Christianity. That seems to be why John would write in this corporate way. He's reminding us that what he's communicating is not, here's my experience and here's why you should believe it because of my credentials, but he's including himself in the household of faith. We also see in verse 4 that joy is the foundation of the Christian life, joy. Now, undoubtedly, there are different translations in the room, depending on what kind of Bible you have, and you might have an issue. Uh, when you look at verse 4, even if you have an ESV, you'll see a footnote. Uh, We're writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. Some of your translations will say, so that your joy may be complete. And so the question is, is it your joy or is it our joy? And the answer is, of course, yes. Yes. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I think the New Living Translation actually gives a really good rendering of the meaning here, which says that you may fully share our joy. If you were to analyze the the phraseology here in the Greek, you'll you'll note that uh, the hour is not us and not you, but the hour is a collective hour. It's the same idea that we just saw in the previous verse regarding fellowship. Fellowship is ours, but we want you to be in fellowship with us because that fellowship is collectively, corporately experienced with fellowship with the one true God. Fellowship is a both and. We care about our fellowship. We care about your fellowship. We want you to be brought into the fold in that way. And the same thing can be said about joy here it's a motivation for my joy as well as your joy and i might pose this question to you christian is how often do you think about joy as a category for others how often do you consider yourself as a fellow christian as responsible to cultivating joy in others How often are you preoccupied with others' joy? John certainly is. John says it's one of the foundations of the Christian life itself. And that yet again brings us back to the corporate reality, the corporate experience of Christianity. It is not me, my Bible, and Jesus only, but it is persons called to belong to a people And that includes our endeavor and cultivation of joy. And John writes this letter, not first and foremost as a course correct from all of these errors, not first and foremost to posit one particular category, such as assurance of salvation, although that is part of it. But the foundation that John cares about, what he wants you to take away from this letter is joy, and not just yours. our joy and that's a fascinating category one that I do not think we have the takeaway from these four verses is that Christianity is not an abstract system Christianity is not do the things say the things be at the places those are part of it of course but you can't boil it down primarily to merely a system, merely a list of things and that's because it's a message founded upon joy and that joy is founded upon a person and if it's founded upon a person then it's personal. It's not merely abstract, it's not merely Laws and realities, those are all part of it, but it is a first-hand encounter with the living and true God. Now you might say, it's too bad that I missed out on that. I'm a couple thousand years removed from the Apostle John. Would have been nice to see Jesus in the flesh. Would have been nice to see the feeding of the 5,000. Would have been certainly profound to look at the cross and hear the words of the eternal Son of God pronounced, it is finished. Nice to read about it would have been really nice to see it firsthand. It's a shame that we missed out on that. This joy that John is talking about, I'm sure was joyous to him. I'm sure was joyous to the original audience because they're just one generation removed. At least they know somebody that knew Jesus directly. But here we are, removed by way of continent, removed by way of chronology. And we say, well, ours is certainly a watered-down Christianity. Ours has to be a, a less than, but that's not true. You know, we sing a hymn that captures this idea, and we sing it well aware of the fact that we weren't there to see it. We sing it every Christmas, and we encapsulate this whole idea as joy to the world. And why? Because the Lord has come. Joy to the World is not just a Christmas song. This really is a fitting song for this first paragraph. John is saying the joy is founded upon the coming, the entering of Jesus Christ into human history. Not as a ghost, as a real person, a person that we touched, we saw, we lived with, we traveled with, we slept beside him, we had food with him. This was a real person, and that joy that was ours can, in fact, be yours, dear Christian, even though we're removed 2,000-plus years. It is not right for us to say, nor is it necessary for us to say, the man may be gone, but at least we still have the message. The Friends, ours is a close encounter with Jesus Christ. Ours is a closer encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ than even they experienced be thought about the third person of the trinity that has yet to be named explicitly in this opening paragraph although he's all over the place the holy spirit you consider what jesus said to the apostles when he gave the great commission when he said and lo i will be with you always he didn't finish the sentence by saying for the next 40 days until I ascend into heaven. He didn't say in the upper room in the Gospel of John, this has been great, but I'm going to leave you, and what I'm leaving you with is less than you had to start with. Neither of those are true. Jesus promised... 40 days shy of ascending into heaven, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And Jesus said in the upper room, it is better for you that I go because of what's coming after I go. And of course, we understand that this applies to the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit Who applies the redeeming benefits that have been procured on our behalf by Jesus Christ? We read earlier from the Westminster Shorter Catechism um, the question related to how those things that we have in Christ justification, sanctification, adoption uh, how they also include other benefits that are related all of those things being work of the spirit and we have assurance of God's love we have peace of conscience joy in the holy ghost increase in grace and perseverance therein to the end all of those benefits we might even say that that is really a great way to introduce the book of first john because he really covers all of those categories but all of those things are ours by the holy spirit he is the one who applies those things to us. We could even take it a step further as we work our way to a close here this morning, in case you're wondering. We could even consider, and I won't do this every time I'm up here, but I mentioned earlier that you can see a direct correlation between what Jesus said to the apostles in the upper room and what John says to us here in the book of 1 John, but it's It's too tempting to not mention it here because I said earlier that you have the Son of God mentioned, you have God the Father mentioned, but you don't have the Holy Spirit explicitly mentioned. And we worship a trinity, not a duality. There's three persons, all equally God. The Holy Spirit is not derivative of or less than what the Father and the Son is. And that remains... True because all of the things that John mentions in these first four verses are ours by way of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And we take that directly from the upper room discourse and the high priestly prayer of Jesus. We mentioned eternal life in this paragraph and Jesus says in his high priestly prayer this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent and the way that they know the true God is by the sending of the Spirit. John mentioned in verse 3 twice, he mentioned that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. There's this idea of proclamation and in verse 2 as well we have seen and testified to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life this proclamation this word is exactly how jesus describes what the spirit will do that idea of proclamation jesus says to his disciples in the upper room the spirit will come and will proclaim all things concerning me eternal life granted to us by the Spirit is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. It is the Spirit who proclaims the truth of Jesus Christ. It is he who will cause you to remember and to know all things that I have said, given to me from the Father. So there's this direct continuity from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And we know this in terms of fellowship. In that high priestly prayer, Jesus says, it is his prayer that they may be one even as we are one, which communicates the idea of fellowship. And if you think about one of the benedictions that your pastor gives from 2 Corinthians, uh, we understand it as the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that gives this fellowship that John is talking about. It's the Holy Spirit that grants us fellowship with the Father and the Son. It's the Holy Spirit that grants us fellowship with one another because it's the same Spirit that's in us. And then finally, Jesus says this right after he tells the disciples that he's about to leave them and go to the father. Jesus says to the father, I am coming to you that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And yet again, the way that that happens is because as he comes to the father, he sends the spirit and it is the spirit that gives us that joy. Well, John is going to speak uh, much more in the coming paragraphs about the Holy Spirit explicitly, but it's worth noting at the front end that those are the things that we should be aware of as gifts and graces communicated to us, applied to us by the Holy Spirit. We know this because, yet again, I could say that the Christian experience is corporate, it's horizontal, because as we look around, We benefit from the gifts of the Spirit. We demonstrate to one another the fruits of the Spirit. It's this ongoing testimony. It's this verification. This one another fellowship that we have is always by way of the Holy Spirit. So friends, it's not worth saying that we have missed out about 2,000 years plus, from this grand reality. It's not worth us saying that, you know, we've entered into human history a little too late here to really get a grasp of what the early church was speaking of, especially the Apostle John. It's not worth saying that, but it is worth offering a warning Because while we shouldn't be preoccupied with missing out on the first coming of Christ, we should be preoccupied with not heeding the warning before he returns. It's far more than too little too late if we don't respond to this testimony of the man and the message try to play it out as we best see in this life and maybe do whatever we want and and come back to this idea of Jesus in our latter years. I mentioned earlier that all of us are dependent on our next breath and we don't know what that last breath will be or when it will be. And neither do we know when the Lord himself will return. And there is not going to be a breakout Bible study session Tying up all the loose ends, one last chance for everybody, Jesus Christ is returning in glory to judge the living and the dead. And we are to heed this message of joy. Come to the one who causes us to say joy to the world, not just joy to Ortega, joy to the world. Come to him if you hear his voice beckoning you in this very passage but friends if you do look to him if you do trust in Christ if you do count him as your savior trusting in the man and the message trusting in that and this we might say it this way trusting in his person and his work then it is my prayer that this joy may be ours because the same man The same Jesus that John saw and heard and touched is the living and ascended Son of God who lives in you by his Spirit. And friends, that is joy unspeakable. Let's pray.